I always enjoy when we get back into a rhythm and can begin to work. And week to week, you can kind of expect to know where you're going. And so we're continuing in uh, Matthew chapter 11. Just to pose a, a sort of question to start with, if I were to ask you who you would say is the greatest person who's ever lived, and I think if you were to ask many people, they'd give you all kinds of answers. Maybe if I were to survey people in the world, they might have a variety of answers. Maybe they would say the greatest person was uh, Alexander the Great. That's his, he called himself that. Why would you not think you were great? Maybe Joan of Arc or Abraham Lincoln or Winston Churchill or maybe people say Gandhi or even Mr. Rogers. I have no idea. People who are great. Certainly a spiritually minded person would go to the Bible and mention people like Abraham and Moses and David, Isaiah, Of course, Christians, we would say Jesus is the greatest person who ever lived. And certainly that's right, but it's right for a different reason than you might expect. Yes, Jesus is the greatest person who has ever existed, but he's also unique. He's unique in that he is the God-man. He is God incarnate, utterly perfect in his humanity. So, in essence, the question's almost not fair. Because how do you stack up a whole population of imperfect people versus the one perfect man? But Jesus is really in a class all his own. And so with him being in a class all his own, we have to adjust the nature of our question. So we ask, who is the greatest? However, Jesus himself seeks to answer that question for us, believe it or not. He tells us who he says is the greatest man who ever lived. He doesn't say Abraham. He doesn't say Moses. He doesn't say Elijah. He does, however, give his answer in Matthew chapter 11, and it might not be who you would think. And so if you're turning with me to Matthew 11, we're continuing in our study here. The events of Matthew 11, they really come after the commissioning of the 12 disciples, whereby Jesus sends them into the towns and cities of Galilee. And then Jesus himself goes out and begins to minister in these same regions, in these same towns. And during his time, when he begins to minister in the towns and cities of Galilee, he's approached by two of the disciples of John the Baptist, and we saw that last time. John sends two disciples to Jesus, and he has this burning question on his mind. John is currently sitting in Herod's prison and begins to wonder about the nature of God's divine plan. He'd been preaching about the arrival of the Messiah. He identified that Messiah as Jesus. He sees him coming and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. However, certainly in John's mind, things weren't progressing in the way that he had expected. They weren't going the way that he thought they were going to go. And so he sends the disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the expected one? Are you the one that we're waiting for? Or should we be looking for someone else? Who are we waiting for? And Jesus responds, by citing the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies of Isaiah 35 and, through 60, or 35 and 61. Just a refresher, Jesus answered and said to him, Go and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So he, he answers by giving a non-answer. He doesn't say yes or no. He simply says, go tell John this, and he quotes prophecy. And by quoting the prophecy, he is showcasing his own fulfillment of that prophecy to the point where John has no other conclusion 
to say, well, Jesus is fulfilling everything, everything I was preaching and every expectation we have of the Messiah, of the coming one. So Jesus' answer is, yes, but here's why. And that's what he does. And with that, he sends the disciples back to John to encourage him that he is, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah. But as these men take their leave and they go back to John to tell him what's going on, Jesus seizes on the opportunity to talk about these events that are taking place. See, the world is on the brink of changing at this point. It's very easy for us to read the Bible and sort of sterilize it on a white page and say, well, that's just stuff that happened back then. But you have to think about the Bible in the course of world history. I remember when I was in high school, we took a, I took a class called World History. We studied everything from, from the Egyptians and the Babylonians and the, the Aztecs. We studied everything. But noticeably absent from my world history class in high school was the events pertaining to the Bible and specifically Israel. Israel was a world player at this time. And the events that were happening in Israel were, were astounding and yet we disregard them. But the Bible records real-life events that are taking place in the course of history, and the Bible records that things were on the brink of changing. Cataclysmic uh, destruction of old systems and seismic changing and moving forward to something else. Everything was going to change forever, and at this point in Matthew's Gospel, in this time, everything was changing and redemption and the redemptive history was progressing. First, it was progressing through the ministry of John the Baptist, and ultimately through the arrival of Jesus to the earth. However, Jesus' audience is completely unaware that anything's going on. We're, we're, we're very seldom uh, cognizant of the fact that things are changing in real time. We can look back over history and say, oh, that was a huge moment then. But in the course of the, of the events at the time, it's hard to see the forest of the trees. But Jesus was keenly aware of this. And he instructs the, the crowd in front of him on what is really taking place in the course of history. We're going to pick it up in Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 7. This is the exact moment that the disciples go away. Verse 7 says, As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you that among those born of women there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven, is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is marvelous scripture, marvelous scripture. Jesus here is purposing to establish John's true identity and also vindicate his ministry in the people's eyes here. D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, notes that John had borne witness to Jesus and now Jesus bears witness to John. 
There's sort of a flip-flop going on here, where before it was John telling everybody who Jesus is, but now Jesus has the opportunity to say, let me tell you something about John. He's the greatest man ever born. They go, that guy, really? Yes, things are not always what they seem, are they? But John's disciples, they had likely spoken to Jesus in front of this large crowd, and so these pertinent questions that they're asking is in front of an audience. Now, the disciples are leaving. He turns to the very same crowd, and he's going to tell them about what's going on. Why did these disciples come to him and ask this question? Why is John seeking to know about this coming one? Who is the coming one? And if you are the coming one, the Messiah, the long-anointed, awaited one, what's going on? Because right now, John's popularity was very high. In fact, a lot of scholars believe that in terms of the course of, of, uh, of the timeline of that day, those current events, John's ministry was far more popular than Jesus. John was drawing large crowds from all over Israel, while at the same time, Jesus has, had not really established himself quite yet. It wasn't until later in the course of his ministry that larger crowds began to follow. And certainly after his death, resurrection, and ascension, that's when Christianity explodes. But at this point in the history, John was far more popular with his message. And so John is popular. Everybody in Israel knows about John, both his supporters and his enemies. Everybody knows about John. And he's drawing crowds from all over the place. And Jesus is really seizing on his popularity, and he's asking this question, why did you go out to see him? He's asking them, what, what is it about John that has you so interested? What did you go out, and remember, he's, he's ministering in the wilderness. Why did you leave the city and go make this trek across the, the desert in difficult conditions to get to John baptizing by a river? What did you go out into the wilderness to see? What was the draw? Was it because he was a good preacher? There's good preachers in, Israel, in Jerusalem right now. Was it because he argued against the Pharisees? He was a zealot? Was that why? Because he liked a rebel rouser? Is that the reason? That's what Jesus is going to uncover here. He's asking the people, what did you go out to the wilderness to see? He poses really one of two of these early rhetorical questions. And he says, are you going out to see a reed shaken by the wind? A reed shaken by the wind. A reed, if you've ever seen a reed, it's a very flimsy piece of growth. It's, it's in the same family as grass, but it's a little bit more firm than grass. But the idea is it's not a very strong thing as it's standing there, and you see them in swamps and things like that. And, and really, it's flimsy, and, and very easily the wind could just blow across and, and snap the top of one over. And the imagery here is really this idea of, of this back and forth and sort of flimsy piece of grass this just denotes a, a fickled, uncertain person. Jesus is saying, did you go out there because he was just all over the place? He was erratic and he's blown around by the winds of change? Is that why he went out? Because he just was different? He was zealous? And the answer to that question is no. In fact, Jesus were, or people were excited about John's ministry and his appeal was that he was resolute and steadfast. Nobody was preaching like John was preaching. Many of the Pharisees, many of the scribes, many of the preachers, they were sort of uh, rabbinic in their, in their questioning. They would do a question and answer and ponder this and think about this and maybe it's this and lots of questions, lots of mystery. But John's like, you need to repent and turn from your sins because the Lord is coming. You're going to die in your sins if you don't repent. And they're like, what? It was shocking to them. And the Pharisees would come out to him and he would say, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? They didn't know what to do with that. Who are you? Who talks like this to us? 
So Jesus is, the answer to Jesus' question is, no, he's not a reed shaken by the wind. That's not why he was going out or, and they were coming out to see him. He was very firm in his message. And so Jesus then he says, well, let's, let's talk about another reason you might go out to see, see him. Verse 8, but what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? He says, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. This Greek word translated soft is malakos. It literally could, it could be rendered fine or soft, but it also has another connotation. It also can mean effeminate, effeminate. See, a lot of these popular preachers were, were very stylish and they wore very nice clothes and they were, they were sort of polished and pristine and, and many of them were even effeminate. But John, John was very different than that. See, soft clothes are for soft men with soft messages. But Jesus is saying, that's not John. John's not like that at all. In fact, he says, those who wear soft clothing, those are in king's palaces. That's where all the, all the dignitaries go. Those are the polished guys. Those are the soft guys. And what's, what's ironic here about this sentiment that Jesus shares, and you have to, you got to see what he's doing here. There's an irony, because where is John currently sitting? He's sitting in the dungeon of a palace ordained by this very soft and effeminate king, Herod. So that's literally where John is, but John doesn't belong there. So Jesus is saying John has no part of that. That's not where he belongs. Jesus is likely using some wordplay here. But the bigger idea is that soft preachers have no backbone. They have no no fortitude. They're weak. And the bigger idea even with that is John, Jesus is saying John's very rugged. He's a very different kind of a guy. In fact, you'd have to be to fit the description in Matthew 3, 4, when when Matthew, the gospel writer, talks about John the Baptist and says his, his garments, his clothing were camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. Camel's hair was very coarse. It wasn't fun to wear. And we think about leather belt. We don't think about a polished Spanish leather. This is a piece of hide that was wrapped around his waist. Very hard, uh, difficult clothing to wear. It's the clothing of a prophet. And what was his food? His food was locusts and wild honey. He ate grasshoppers. That was his main diet. And when he had a hard time stomaching the grasshopper, he just put some honey, raw honey, to fight off the bee swarms to get to the honey. But, you know, that's the kind of man John is. This is a rugged dude. So John is not weak and self-serving many, like the many of the other preachers that there were. He was a devoted man who denied himself. That's the big idea. He denied himself, and he lived a consecrated life to the Lord. Many believe that he actually took a Nazarite vow and didn't cut his hair. So he was a weird guy to look at, too. But he was strong and he was forceful. But is that the draw? Was it simply that he was bold? Was it simply that he was manly? There's something else about John. What was it that captivated all these people to go out to him and see him? Was it his strength and his resoluteness? Was it his uniqueness or his fortitude? Jesus asks again in verse 9, but what did you go out to see? Why did you go out? He's pushing this question pretty hard. Then he asks this question, And he means to answer with the question, a prophet? A prophet? Is that why you went out? Because he's a prophet? And then he answers, yes. That's why you went out. Because he's a prophet. Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. More than a prophet. Who is John the Baptist? Jesus says he's a prophet. He's a prophet. What is a prophet? 
Well, a prophet is a divinely appointed spokesman of God. It's one who God gives a message to, to deliver to God's people, and he must go and convey that message faithfully. That's a prophet. Many people think that Malachi is the last Old Testament prophet, but it's actually John. John, if you look at the the course of biblical history, John is the last Old Testament prophet. He does not have the full gospel yet. He's still working in terms of the law, the Old Testament. Yet he is in a very special place. He comes to Israel with a message from God. But Jesus adds to this, he's more than a prophet. How could he be more than a prophet? Well, because John is the final prophet to come to Israel to prepare them for the Messiah. See, there have been other prophets in Israel. There have been a lot of prophets. And the prophets weren't treated very well, by the way. They were oftentimes derided and scorned and beaten and even killed. But he was a special kind of prophet because there was a distinct purpose to his ministry. He wasn't just coming to preach and call them to repentance, even though he was. He did more than that. And Jesus actually makes a reference to this ministry in verse 10. He's quoted in the Old Testament, but look at your Bible. Look at verse 10. Jesus brings John into the Scriptures, and he says, This is the one about whom it was written. Then he quotes, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Now, we see a very similar verse here quoted. It really comes from Exodus 23.20. That's a reference to the people of Israel about to enter the promised land. But really, with regard to Jesus' usages here, this verse actually comes from another place that's more fitting. It actually comes from Malachi chapter 3. So flip back in your Bible just a couple of pages to Malachi 3. Malachi is the last book right before Matthew's gospel. So it ends with Malachi, begins in Matthew. So just go back a few pages. We went through this a couple years ago, back in 2019. I think we spent seven weeks going through Malachi, really in preparation for uh, this series in Matthew, even though I didn't tell you at the time, I wanted to surprise you. Where are we going? Where are we going? Where are we going? Well, we got to Malachi, finished Malachi, and said, we're going to go to Matthew, and it was exciting, and here we are. So we've already covered some of this ground for a good reason, because I wanted to bring us back through all the places that Jesus goes in Matthew to tell us the truth about what's going on. So again, Malachi 3, we've been here before, I want to refresh your memory. Malachi is the last prophecy given to Israel for 400 years of silence. So he prophesies, it's quiet for 400 years, and then one day, John walks in out of the wilderness and says, I have a message for you. So it's very stark, very notable that John comes with this message. But at this point in the course of Israel's history in the times of Malachi, Israel has all but rejected the Lord, and he warns them with severe judgment. But he wasn't just coming with a warning all by itself. There's going to be signs. He tells about signs that are going to take place. The Lord is planning to come to his people, but he's not just going to show up unannounced. He's going to send somebody ahead of him. Malachi chapter 3 This is the words of God to the people of God Israel. He says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his people. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like the fuller's soap. 
And he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. And I will be swift, a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earners in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. And so, in his anger over the sinfulness of Israel... Excuse me, I lost my place here. In his anger, he promises to come to them, but he says he's going to send a messenger to them before he arrives. And this messenger is going to be this powerful figure. Now, certainly, the refining and the the cleansing is really a work of the Lord, but John, and we know this from later history, but this messenger is coming with this sort of fire. I mean, his message is going to be something that, that cleanses and purifies But he's not going to come unnoticed. He's going to come in this white-hot fury to prepare the way for the Lord to follow behind him. And who is this person going to be? At the end of Malachi 4, so just look over your page here to Malachi 4, he gives the name. He gives the name. Malachi 4, 5. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And with the sound of the word curse, God closes the revelation for 400 years. But he prophesies, I'm going to send you Elijah. He's going to come again before I come to you. And so it's understood that God's going to send this man, this prophet Elijah, who we've seen before in the course of Israelite history, and he's going to prepare the way for the arrival of the Lord. But this is the messenger that Jesus is speaking about in chapter 11. So go back to Matthew 11. Matthew 11. Now if you notice here, very interesting, Jesus essentially modifies Malachi 3.1. I want you just to, you can look it on the page here, but I want you to just listen to the, to the word changes here. Malachi quotes God saying, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. That was what Malachi says of God. But Jesus quotes this verse, but changes the audience. It's almost as if Jesus is quoting Malachi 3.1 in a way that God would have conveyed it to him while he was still in heaven. It's almost as if he's doing that. Because Jesus says this, Behold, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, you, who will prepare your way before you. He changes the verse a little bit. And really, he's taking it on himself, that the verse is speaking about him, and we know that it certainly is. In this way... God the Father is telling the Son about the arrival of John before he's going to come. Very interesting. But the audience, they would have caught the reference. They would have heard him say that. They would have known he quoted it a little bit differently than Malachi did. But they would have known who this is talking about. So 
Why is John more than a prophet? Because he is the God-appointed messenger sent before Jesus to prepare his way. He's more than a prophet because he is the, the forerunner. He's the one who was supposed to come before Jesus comes. This is, again, world-changing events. This is not just another prophet who comes and yells at Israel, they kill him and they move on with their lives. That's not this. This is something else. This is something new, something different. He had the most important job, really, in the whole world to announce this most urgent message that God himself is going to come to this earth. Powerful, powerful ministry. And this is why Jesus says in Verse 11, verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Now Jesus isn't comparing John to other people in order to elevate John. He's not saying, oh, let me tell you something about John, and puts him in this celebrity status. Because even John didn't think that about himself. John says, I'm nothing. First of all, John said earlier in John's Gospel, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, he says, I'm just a voice in the wilderness. They asked him, are you you Elijah? He says, I'm just a voice. I'm nobody. And later on in chapter 3 of John's Gospel, he says, "I, I must decrease so that Christ might increase. And he says, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoe. That's how low I am. So this isn't really about John. It's really more about what John came to do. Because the religious elite wanted to dismiss John as some sort of a fanatic. But Jesus is asserting that John is the most important and greatest person ever born of women. That's a Hebrew idiom for general humanity. The the greatest person ever born to women. John is great because he is the messenger of Malachi 3.1, pointing to the coming of the Lord. But yet in the very next breath, it's very interesting, very next breath, Jesus says, yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Huh? I thought you just said he's the greatest and now you're saying that he's not? What's going on? Again, John is the greatest because of what he came to do, the ministry he was given. That's why he's so great, because he's pointing to the great one. Again, he's announcing the Messiah is coming. The Messiah, Jesus, again, John said he's the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world, something that all the priests and all the sacrifices and all the bulls and the goats, something that none of them could ever do. Jesus himself is going to come in one action and do all of it by himself. So the point is that John is saying, salvation, my friends, salvation has come. No more self-atonement. Not even possible. Salvation through Christ is coming. And now that Christ has come, every person that confesses their sins to God and believes in the Lord Jesus will be granted eternal life and be granted entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And in this way, after Christ had come, now every single new believer was entering the kingdom of God, entering heaven, and every single Christian believer after John had more revelation than John had. They had more understanding of the gospel than John had. More faith, and soon, because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, more of the Holy Spirit than John ever could have had. So even though John's the greatest... 
He's only the, the precipice of this new age that after the ministry of John and the coming of Christ, every single Christian from the time of Jesus' last days here and beyond, all of us have more given to us by faith and through God's grace than John ever had. Now that is not to say that John is not a part of the kingdom. We believe and we understand, of course he is. John confessed his sins and John looked at Jesus and said, I believe in him. He had very tangible faith. So John certainly is in the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus, and mark this, Jesus is pointing to the massive, massive seismic shift that's taking place at this point in history where the coming of John the Baptist and now the arrival of Jesus is changing everything. This is a new age at this point in history. This is a new era, a new covenant, a new dispensation. The old things are passing away and going away, and the new things have come. Where Israel had been kept under the law for 1,600 years, bound by law, under the law. And even before all that, the whole world had been enslaved and trapped in sin for millennia, thousands and thousands and thousands of years. But now Christ has come, and He's here right now. And He's opening up the gates of heaven through His own sacrifice and death and resurrection. And soon, very, very soon, at this point in Matthew 11, He hasn't done it yet, But within about a year and a half of these events, he's going to do it, and he's going to die, he's going to resurrect, and he's going to open up the gates, and thousands upon thousands of people at that time in Israel are going to be breaking through out of the kingdom of darkness and breaking into the kingdom of heaven through Jesus. This is going to be a mass exodus that's going to put the Egyptian exodus to shame. Powerful, life-changing, earth-shattering, epoch-changing events that draw Jesus to say this very next thing. Verse 12, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. What does this mean? What does this mean? I wrestled this week like you wouldn't believe. Lord, what does this mean? This is a hotly debated verse with many popular interpretations. And the issue really pertains to how some of these words are rendered in the Greek. Jesus notes that the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. The Greek word is biadzo, which really means to force or constrain or suffer violence, but it really has to do with how the verb is being rendered. And just to get technical for just a second, if it's in the middle voice, it reads more like this. The kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing. That's certainly true. It is forcefully advancing. However, if the verb is in the passive, it reads more like this. The kingdom of heaven has forces advancing upon it or is suffering violence. Again, but what does this mean? What does this mean? Some maintain that Jesus is telling the crowd that beginning with John... Evil forces are at work to attack the kingdom of heaven. After all, Satan can't be happy about the fact that with the coming and death and resurrection of Jesus, all of a sudden, all of hell is going to be emptied and all of heaven is going to be filled. He's not happy about this. 
So he does everything he possibly can. He rages against the king, so much so that he actually weasels his way into one of Jesus' disciples, his own apostles, and is able to besiege Judas to betray Jesus to his face. That's how close Satan gets. And so it's certainly true that the forces of hell and evil are raging against the kingdom of heaven. It is true. But there's certainly more going on. Certainly more. Because not only is the kingdom of heaven being attacked by the enemy, it's also being besieged, in a good way, I believe, by those who are entering in. See, it makes no sense that Jesus would be commenting about hell attacking heaven. After all, Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, He promises He's going to build His church. He's doing it even now. And what does He say about that? The gates of hell will not prevail. So you think Jesus is really concerned about hell? Do you think it really personally bothers Him that they're going to win? No. Jesus, in fact, says, No, I'm going to build my church and they won't survive. That's true even of today, my friends. We tend to think that we're sort of on this losing side of this advancing, this advancing evil. And there is certainly an advancing evil in the world, even right now, that's going on. To the point where even nations are getting together to advance evil purposes, even right now. But Jesus has promised he's going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. So I don't believe that Jesus, per se, is specifically talking about the advancement of evil. Rather, he's addressing those who would hear this warning message of John and also this gospel message of Christ, these who would hear and believe and thereby enter the kingdom of heaven by faith. Now, he's not saying that you can simply march into heaven by willpower. Well, I I just want to go to heaven. You can just somehow besiege the kingdom on your own effort. But rather, he's speaking about those who will respond To the message, we're saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. That has never changed. However, when a person hears that message, when you believe the gospel and you hear it, understand it, and it does its work in your life and in your heart, and you forsake your sin and you cling to Christ for life, then you're marching in with joy and exuberance and passion and determination. I want to go to heaven. And I want to go right now. And I want to trust in Jesus now. I'm so sick of my old life and my old self. I want righteousness. I want Jesus. I'll do whatever it takes to get there. And you say, Lord, take me. Like Isaiah in Isaiah 6. Lord, send me. I'll go. I'm a man of unclean lips, but still please use me. He's besieging the throne of grace. Whereby Jesus comes as the Bible says, to proclaim liberty to the captives. And He comes to His people and He says, I've given freedom. And they hear and they respond and they say, I want that. And so Jesus is coming to give this message of liberty. And He's setting captives free from judgment and from sin and from hell. And you can almost hear the throng of the angels singing and praising and shouting. The cross is the most somber, sad, depressing, awful thing that's ever happened because of sin. But for the believer, for the kingdom of righteousness, it is the most marvelous, joyful, exuberant, powerful, victorious thing that's ever happened. Because in that act, 
In that act, literally the ground shook and broke in two, and righteousness comes in, salvation comes in, and all these people trapped in their sin now have victory and salvation through a Savior. And souls are flooding into the kingdom, even right now. I went to a funeral yesterday, and you could just, I mean, it was palpable. Even though she has been gone for several months from this earth, there was a visible testimony. This believer is in heaven. And you know as soon as a a, a person takes their last breath in this life as a Christian, shoot straight up to heaven, they're with Christ. And they march on heaven. Not wrapped in their own self-righteousness, but wrapped in the robe of the righteousness of Christ. I'm home because you brought me here. So there is a powerful, powerful thing going on here. Because sinners hear that they're forgiven. And what do they do? We take up our bed and we want to go home. Don't we? We want to go home. And home for us is heaven. And you take it by force. We don't stroll into the kingdom. We don't. We don't just get up one day and say, "Ah, I think I'm a Christian today. I think I'll go to church. I got myself a new Bible. I think I'm good. And just kind of mosey your way in. People don't change that way. Yeah, I realize I'm sinful, but, you know, I mean, God's gracious, right? I think I'm okay. That isn't how believers respond to the gospel. No, when you hear that you're a sinner, when you realize you're a sinner, you rip your garments and you say, have mercy on me. And there's a sense of hopelessness. I've done things on my own, by myself, and my own power, my own strength, and I've ruined myself. Lord, forgive me, have mercy. And then God's grace floods into you. And you respond with thanksgiving, and you just want to run. You want to run to heaven and say, take me. You storm heaven. You take it by force. And what is that force? It's a holy violence. Not against other people. Not against world systems. It's a holy violence against your own sin, against your own nature, and it's a violence against every impulse you have not to trust in Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about that more next week. But Jesus here is articulating an epic-changing event whereby beginning with the ministry of John the Baptist, sinners are being forgiven, violent against their own nature, And they're sieging heaven through Christ. Everything's changing. How do we know this is what he's referring to? Because he points to it, this unprecedented event, in verse 13. Look at verse 13. Again, this is is life-changing, world-changing, time-changing events. Verse 13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Why is that important? Because he's essentially saying all of history... All of salvation history, all of the prophets, all of the law, and when he says all the law, he doesn't just mean commandments. He means everything written in the Old Testament, everything written in the books of Moses, the Psalms, everything. He's saying all of the Bible, everything from this point on, from Genesis 1-1 until the ministry of John the Baptist, everything has been pointing to this point. All the prophets, all the law have been prophesying until now. And we're building on this 
anticipation of the Lord sending this messenger to come. And so everything is pointing to John because John is pointing to the Messiah, to Jesus. And John is the last piece of the puzzle that has to fall into place before the Messiah can come and bring salvation. That's why what Jesus says next is so very amazing. Look at verse 14. Jesus continues, And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. There's power in that. This is life-changing. But then you pause and you say, wait a second. Wait a second. When John the Baptist was asked if he was Elijah, what did he say? No. He says, no, I'm not Elijah. I'm just a voice, remember? Well, that's true. John, the son of Zacharias and Elizabeth, this person, this man John, is not the physical reincarnation of the person of Elijah. In fact, we know that Elijah himself is going to come again. However, Jesus is making the point, and he says this elsewhere in Luke 1.17, that John has come in the spirit and power of Elijah. means he's not the literal Elijah, but he's coming in this office. He's filling Elijah's shoes here to do something powerful. And so Jesus is clear that John is fulfilling the prophecy concerning Elijah in Malachi 4.5, that he comes before the arrival of the Lord. And for all intents and purposes, if the people of Israel had accepted John as Elijah and accepted Christ as the king, then theoretically, the end would have come right then and there, and the day of the Lord would be upon us. It is theoretically possible that Israel could have accepted John the Baptist as Elijah and accepted Christ, and when he came on Palm Sunday on the back of a donkey riding into Jerusalem, they could have crowned him king right then and there. He could have taken his seat on on David's throne and ruled. But that isn't what happened, is it? That isn't what happened. They rejected him. First they rejected John, and he was killed. And then they rejected Jesus, and he was killed. But my friends, it had to be this way. It had to be this way. And God sovereignly decreed it. Because here's the thing. If Jesus hadn't have died, there would be no payment for sin. There'd be no payment for us if he hadn't have died. And all of the world would have perished in judgment had Christ not come. And so even though John came in the spirit and power of Elijah, he's not Elijah. Elijah is going to come again. We don't know when he's coming, but when he does show up again, it's going to be right before the Lord comes again. So my friends, you and I will most likely see Elijah somewhere in the future. Whether we're here looking across the board or whether we're looking down from heaven, we'll see him come back. When he comes, the Lord will judge the nations. Right now, it seems as though the world is winning, doesn't it? But this is just a temporary thing. Christ is victorious. He was victorious then. He's victorious now. He will be victorious forevermore. And so our job is to do what we're being told to do here. And that is to take seriously these changing events given to us in the Bible. That everything has changed when Jesus arrived. 
And that you and I, we don't just stroll our way into heaven. I'll tell you, the world has done a very good job of making all of us complacent. We're very, very good at sitting. We're told it's a good thing to sit and do nothing. But the Bible says, no, this is very different. That you and I are to siege forward. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. The violent take it by force. Again, this is not talking about, and we're going to talk about this next week, but this is not talking about you and I getting angry and somehow fighting this world. No, it's about you and I getting serious about the things of heaven and surging forward. Jesus has already promised to clear the way. He's already promised that the kingdom of heaven is going to advance, that the gates of hell will not prevail. But there's coming a day, my friends, when God will come and he will judge the nations. I suspect he'll start with ours because of the wickedness of our sin. But Jesus, he ends his teaching here and he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Translation, pay attention. Pay attention. Do you hear God's voice calling you in your heart? Do you hear him? Do you hear him beckoning you? Come to me. Turn from your sins. Stop doing this on your own. Stop living for yourself. Stop living in the flesh. Come to me. And if you're weary and heavy laden, He'll give you rest. He'll forgive your sins. Turn from them. He'll forgive them. And He'll give you the rest and the fortitude and the strength and the grace that you need. Our shepherd will care for you. He loves His church. He loves His people. So come to Him. And I would even say that if you are in that place today where you realize, I'm dead without Him, then if that's you, then don't delay. Run to Him. Run to Him. Grab hold of salvation while it's near. Take what He's offering you. Don't be lackadaisical. Don't drag your feet. Don't presume you have tomorrow because you and I are not promised tomorrow. Take hold now. Turn from your sins. Trust in Jesus Christ and live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I know that You give us grace and You give us rest and You give us peace. That You overcome our anxieties. That You command us to trust You and not to fear that You want us to be still and know that You are God. And so, Lord, we recognize from the Scriptures that there's so much of the kingdom of heaven that is peaceful and sound and calm. But at the same time, Lord, You build into our new nature a zeal for godliness, a zeal for good works, a zeal for holiness that You desire us to take this one life that we have and run hard after You. To give up everything. To not allow ourselves to become content and fearful and lackadaisical and worried and set aside and derided. But rather that You desire us, Lord, to chase You. To attack our prayer life. To attack our Bible reading. To attack evangelism to attack loving other people and serving other people and giving to them, to attack repentance, to fight every impulse in us that is ungodly and to run hard after You. 
That's what Paul said, Lord. We, we remember our brother's words. That he lays, or that he, he boxes not as though beating the air. That he runs the race. Hebrews tells us to lay aside every encumbrance, every stumbling block. And so God, I pray that you would put into your people, even today, an earnestness for godliness. A zeal to run hard and see you on your throne and run after you. And run so hard that we won't stop until we get there. Father, I know theologically this is all by grace through faith. Yes, we know, Lord. But at the same time, give us our constitution to do this because we love you and want to honor you. Have mercy on us, Lord, and help us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.